Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. my enormous pleasure this morning to welcome to AEI once again, Congressman Michael McCall. Congressman McCall has uh, represented the 10th District of Texas since 2004. He has three different times chaired the Homeland Security Committee in the House, and he now is the ranking Republican on House Foreign Affairs. Um, He is also the author of a terrific book from 2016, called Failures of Imagination, that if you haven't read, I strongly commend to you. It limbers you up to think about not just the threats, but also policy choices and the technology that uh, we all need to get knowledgeable about. And he is here this morning to talk with us about China, um, first to give prepared remarks and then to be in a conversation with AEI's own terrific director of Asia policy, Dan Blumenthal. Uh, who has a distinguished career both in government uh, and also as a scholar of these issues. His forthcoming book, The China Nightmare, is out this spring from AEI, which I also encourage you to read. Congressman McCall, won't you come? I just want to thank AEI for inviting me once again. It's a great institution. We've hired a lot of uh, my staff from AEI, and they've done a fantastic job. Um, You've really been a leading voice on China and a go-to resource for policymakers like myself. We rely on your products uh, very much so. I want to engage in a really serious conversation about overall relationship with China and our understanding of the People's Republic of China and Chairman Xi's Chinese Communist Party. And our policies must be really guided by the facts. And I want to start with anecdotally a case I worked on in 1996 when I was a young federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice Public Integrity Section, and um, there were were reports coming in that China was trying to influence our election. So the idea of a foreign power trying to influence our election is not anything new. And in this case, it it was the PRC. And I had the the case, uh, Johnny Chung, and uh, we prosecuted him. He um, pled guilty, and then he started cooperating with us in what was probably, probably the most fascinating prosecution that a young guy at that time uh, could have, uh, because Johnny Chung then led us to uh, the director of Chinese intelligence. And Chung uh, really walked into an intelligence apparatus. Uh, he met with, the, with Liu Chaoying, who was the uh, executive vice president of, of China Aerospace, and her father was the most powerful general in China at that time. There's no distinguishing between private sector and military intelligence. And so they brought him in and um, in a room with an antenna, uh, Xi Shenda, the, the Chinese uh, director of intelligence, said, we like your president, we want to see him get reelected, and we want to give him money. And they gave him about $360,000. We had a bank deposit slip from Liu Chaoying, China Aerospace, into his Hong Kong bank account, and then Johnny, uh, in his usual comical way, paid off his mortgage, and the rest of it went to the Clinton campaign. Um, but it was, a, it was interesting in the sense that 
at a young age, I, this is decades ago now, but I got a taste of you know, the tech transfer, satellite technology. Why were they so interested? And in, Clinton had gone pro-Taiwan, anti-China to then pro-China. And the idea that they could cultivate him to do the tech transfers, dual-use technologies like satellites to, to maybe help our economy, but strengthen the Chinese. And they liked that policy. And they liked it so much they wanted to see him get reelected. I thought it was very fascinating. We had a lot of wiretaps up in China, a lot of strange things that happened. And um, the strangest thing was my FBI agent, Foreign Counterintelligence, when the wall was up back then, we shared a lot with him, but he couldn't share anything with us. A year after that case was over, he was indicted uh, for espionage. Uh, he was sleeping with a Chinese spy. That's called the honeypot. And everything I was giving him, he was turning over to the Chinese spy that he actually took to FBI Christmas parties, believe it or not. And, and that information, all that information, sensitive information from Title III wiretaps went straight to the PRC um, and to the Chinese. So that was my first kind of taste of China. Um, and, you know, I, that's been more than 20 years ago, but this story really could easily be a headline today. And the threat from Chairman Xi's Chinese Communist Party largely remains the same. But it's now more aggressive. It's, it's more expansive, sophisticated, and better resourced. And the threat is really multidimensional, impacting schools our children attend, the technology we rely on, and the potential wars we need to plan for. The CCP is a strategic adversary and our top competitor. And let me be clear, our challenge uh, is with the CCP and not the Chinese people or their rich culture. Immigrants of China descent are deeply intertwined into the fabric of our society. Their entrepreneurism, work ethic, family values, and commitment to the American dream have enriched communities across our country. But it's the Chinese Communist Party that has been using a slow, deceptive campaign for decades to achieve superpower status by eroding the foundations of democratic societies around the world and American global leadership. Chairman Xi is accelerating this campaign. Not the reformer many imagined in the beginning. Xi is a hardened communist. He's a believer of what former Chairman Mao said, quote, all political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. The United States initially worked with the PRC, President Nixon, Henry Kissinger's trip to China led them to believe that we could possibly stave off a shared threat from the Soviet Union by driving a wedge between communist powers. And just as we helped other Asian countries rebuild their economies, the United States believed a prosperous, stable PRC was in our global interest. And in his 1972 victory speech, President Nixon cast his opening with China as part of the, quote, greatest generation of true peace that man has, has ever known. We miscalculated. We really miscalculated this one on all levels. As Dr. Pillsbury, author of 100-Year Marathon, stated, the most, it was the most dangerous, most systematic, significant, and da dangerous intelligence failure in American history. China promotes a false narrative 
that the United States seeks to stop China's rise when, in truth, they have rejected decades of engagement and repeatedly chosen to pursue malign, deceptive, zero-sum policies, empty promise after empty promise. I commend the Trump administration for distinguishing itself with a new policy, a competitive policy and a clear-eyed policy approach towards China. Under this administration, the United States will begin to impose consequences for China's malign actions. But how do we get here? For decades, the United States policy of leniency towards the PRC has been based on false assumptions. The CCP claims the PRC is open and free, yet it rounds up and oppresses ethnic and religious minorities, including Christians, Uyghurs, and Tibetans, and censors free speech and religious tests. Just last week, I helped pass legislation in the House supporting the people of Tibet against the CP's attempts to dismantle Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama. And they want to replace the Dalai Lama with one of their own. And we cannot let that happen. The CCP claims the PRC is a market economy, yet it spends tens of billions of dollars to subsidize its own industries. It steals hundreds of millions of dollars worth of American intellectual property every year. And as Secretary Pompeo has explained, under Chinese law, private sector companies must share technology with their military. China does not have a private sector as we know it in this country. These Chinese companies are arms of the state at best and tools of the military at worst. The CCP claims its foreign policy respects sovereignty and international rules, yet it disregards its WTO commitments, and it has the world's second-largest GDP, but still claims to be a developing nation status in order to deceive the international system and get World Bank loans. Imagine China's the number two economic empire in the world yet they're defined as a developing nation that qualifies for, for um, World Bank loans. I think a, a country with an expansive space program, do they really need loans from the, the World Bank? <laughs> Additionally, they use debt trap, belt and road initiative diplomacy to take strategic land and resources from nations through their predatory belt and road initiative. CCP claims it believes in the rule of law. Yet FBI Director Chris Wray told Congress that, quote, there is no country that poses a more severe counterintelligence threat to this country right now than China. End of quote. In fact, the FBI has more than 1,000 open intellectual property theft investigations, and almost all lead back to China, according to the FBI director. And former General Alexander, the NSA director, calls this the, quote, greatest transfer of wealth in human history. We do not need to look further than last week to see the pervasive reach of their Thousand Talents program, which I've warned about for years. Harvard's lead chemist was arrested for lying to the Pentagon about taking millions of communist research funds. A Chinese national was stopped at an airport with 21 vials of biological research in his socks. A PLA officer committed visa fraud in an effort to discover military research projects. Texas A&M University, my home state, discovered more than 
100 faculty members were involved with the Chinese talent recruitment program, even though only one, only five had disclosed participation. And these are just in the recent weeks. In the last year, a massive espionage campaign to steal advanced biomedical research was exposed at Houston MD Anderson's Cancer Center, a prominent research facility uh, in my, near my district. Multiple scientists were caught <clears throat> sending research back to China, implying to do so. In an email back to China, one scientist wrote, quote, I should be able to bring the whole set of primers to you. If I can figure out how to get a dozen tubes of frozen DNA onto an airplane. And remember, MD Anderson, Dr. Allison, discovered immunotherapy, which is going to be the breakthrough in the way we treat cancer, to use your own T cells, your own immune system, to attack the cancer rather than chemo, killing the cancer before it kills you. But simply put, we've let them get away with this. Really, we've given it to them, really, for way too long. And as a nation, we've been asleep at the wheel. And I think only until recently, and I think, Dan, with your book, are we waking up to what has happened. And they've used our complacency to their advantage. I think it is time for America to wake up to this threat and really start to compete. We can say China's a bad actor, but we got to compete. And if we don't compete, we're going to lose. And no other area in, in this competition more consequential, I think, than in cutting-edge technologies like quantum computing, which is a digital space race. Just like a race to the moon, quantum will be a, a space race in the digital space. Artificial intelligence, cyber, and 5G is vitally important. When you look at the global map and you look where they are in terms of Belt and Road and 5G, it's, it's approaching nearly half of the world. And we're now just waking up to that fact. Chairman G has publicly stated he views, quote, high-end technology like 5G as a, quote, national weapon. When CCP companies plant down 5G networks, they own the digital space and everything stored on it. From personal data to sensitive government and business information, China's own national intelligence law states that, quote, any organization or citizen shall support assist, and cooperate with the state intelligence work. And they are deploying their state-owned 5G worldwide. I just sent a team to South America to examine Chinese influence in the region, particularly in telecom. And sadly, I was not surprised by their findings. China is buying key companies and infrastructure and winning the race to deploy Huawei's 5G and undersea cables. Their influence and access to data are also growing in other key regions like Africa, where their ambassadors tell me America and our businesses are just, quote, not there. We need to be there uh, to compete. It's amazing to me, the, uh, the Panama Canal, Teddy Roosevelt built it, Carter gave it back, and now both ends of the Panama Canal have ports controlled by the Chinese. One large uh, American company, with substantial presence in Africa, told me that African leaders have said to the company, please, quote, please do not leave us in the hands of the Chinese. They simply have no alternative in these developing nations. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say how disappointed I, I am with the UK's decision, one of our five-eye partners, to let Huawei into their networks.
And we introduced a resolution with uh, myself and, and uh, Liz Cheney uh, condemning this. The goal of the CCP's deception is national rejuvenation. This is China's, quote, aspiration to replace the United States as the economic, military, and polit political leader of the world by the year 2049, which is the 100th year anniversary of the founding of the PRC. The CCP is well on their way <clears throat> by dominating manufacturing supply chains for critical sectors, achieving supremacy in core technologies, uh, remaking trade routes to put China at the center of the global economy, and building up dominance in space, cyber, sea, and on the land. I'm sure many of you watched them showcase their military might late last year by parading thousands of troops, and I think the biggest surprise was to see their nuclear and hypersonic weapons paraded through Tiananmen Square. Some of these weapons we didn't know they actually had. Hypersonics are these exotic weapons that travel 40 times the speed of sound, and they're so fast that we simply can't stop them. The message was clear that Chairman G will no longer quote, hide his strength and bide his time like previous party leaders. They are competing at every level and competing to win. If the CCP succeeds, there will be grave consequences for America and the world. More jobs, innovation, and wealth will move to China. The PRC will be able to push the United States military out of the Indo-Pacific, and the PRC's Orwellian model of digital governance will spread globally. So we need to take action. The president, Congress, business, civil society, and others, when the CCP threatens our interests or values, we must impose consequences. When the CCP steals 20 million, 25 million security clearances, including mine and probably yours. I remember getting that notice in the mail that the Chinese have my, you know, I filled it out in paper, but it was digitized by the FBI and then, Chinese went through OPM and stole everything. And what were the consequences to that? Absolutely nothing. When I asked Secretary Johnson of Homeland Security, what is our response to this? We had a meeting with the Chinese. This is what has to change. You know, it's like my kids. I got five kids, right? There are no consequences to bad behavior. Guess what? Bad behavior continues. And we have to take the, we have to have consequences to this. CCP is all powerful in China, but continues to allow the export of fentanyl to poison our children. What a foreign policy when you think about that one. They poison over a hundred Americans per day die to fentanyl, and the Chinese they're poisoning in America, and they're making money off it. G committed to stopping this, but we still see it coming in. And we need to be stronger and more resolute with our actions, with our allies against those responsible for these concentration camps, as the DOD calls them, in Western China, and the suppression of pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. We need to hold Chinese companies to the same corporate transparency requirements as our own companies and better communicate to our universities, as I've tried to do, and businesses about the dangers of working with 
and becoming reliant on Chinese funds and markets. So what have we done and what do we need to do? First of all, I think this administration and Congress have started to take China head on for the first time. The administration has correctly labeled China as a strategic competitor, and they are. They're not a developing nation anymore. And they are adopt, ad, adapting to the PLA's growing capabilities in new domains, including space, outer space. I was proud to be at Andrews Air Force Base when the National Defense Authorization Bill was signed by the President, creating a new branch of service, the Space Force. Uh, this is not by accident, it's by design, because we have to compete with China and Russia uh, in space. There was kind of an interesting joke, like, what, what are we going to call the cadets at this Space Force? They'll be the space cadets, I guess. We've sanctioned Chinese companies that are perpetrating human rights abuses throughout China and launched a Department of Justice China initiative that has convicted American and Chinese nationals for espionage and other criminal behavior. Things I tried to do back in my day as a young prosecutor, we finally have a DOJ that's taken espionage from China seriously. And Congress has passed two bipartisan bills, both now law, that impose consequences on the CCP for its suppression in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Democracy and Freedom Act, um, which was very bipartisan on both sides of the aisle, um, supporting freedom and democracy and the people of Hong Kong against the oppression of China. We also appropriate more than $300 million to counter Chinese influence around the world in funding technologies that support Internet freedom. Remember, in China, just like Iran, the Internet was not built, uh, like here, it was built not with security in mind, but as an open academic exercise. And the power of, of academics is an open, free-flowing of information in society. But it's also the greatest vulnerability. And China created their Internet, just like Iran did, with security in mind, so they can turn off and on the Internet with a switch. And we see it in Iran turning off the Internet and killing people. We see China controlling uh, their Internet uh, as well. We're also putting commercial diplomacy at the forefront of our foreign policy to help confront China around the world through bills like my Championing American Business Through Diplomacy Act. You know, the original mission of the Foreign Service was to advance American interest. American business interests. It's in their charter, and yet many diplomats seem to forget that that is a fundamental mission of the State Department is to advance our business interest abroad. And the BUILD Act and the Development Corporation, it's kind of like OPIC on steroids, is going to be fundamental in how we can compete against this Chinese influence both in Africa and in Latin America. They are just a start, and we're going to do much more. We're also working on phase two deal with China to address the structural concerns in our trade relationships, namely subsidies, industrial policy that make it possible, impossible to compete with China's national champions like Huawei. We need to work more strongly with our allies to put effective controls on critical technologies and empower China's military civil fusion initiative. And we must find a way with our partners to come together on privacy, AI, exports control to counter a Chinese-led techno-authoritarian bloc. And most importantly, we need to invest in ourselves. 
We need to hold society dialogue on ways to break our businesses' reliance on the Chinese market. We need to continue our lead in research and development and address the cost of restricting commercial activity that undermines U.S. security. The American people need to understand the privacy-related dangers from seemingly harmless apps that they download. And many of my teenage girls' friends like TikTok and companies that are working with or investing in. Americans and others need to understand the true cost, social and beyond, of doing business with China. This will be a process, but Americans are beginning to wake up, I think, to this reality. So today, average Americans have the touchstones of Hong Kongers fighting for democracy, concentration camps, repressing minorities in Western China, and the NBA choosing profit over values. Prosecuting the Johnny Chung case, going back to the beginning, I really saw firsthand how the CCP operates and how they try to undermine and exploit our democracy. Thankfully, we brought that single case to justice. Now, I hope we can address this decades-long issue in a new and more comprehensive manner. And education, raising awareness is the first step. And that's why I'm proud to be launching a campaign in the Congress to bring Americans together to counter China's deception and global malign activities and to help educate the American people on the serious challenges before us and the cost of, in, of inaction. So my goal is to help elevate the national discourse with a continuing dialogue, and I want to thank AEI for this opportunity. With that, I just want to thank all of you for being here today. Uh, I look forward to a robust uh, discussion with our fireside chat, uh, Q&A, and um, I'm not one of these guys that, that wants to scare people or, you know, be a warmonger. Uh, I think most people want peace, but we have to wake up to the fact that, that China has been ripping us off and stealing. Stealing is blind for decades. I think, you know, why invent when you can steal? We still have Huawei facilities and Silicon Valley, and when I talk to the technology companies, they say nothing good's coming out of those buildings. They're just stealing. And I don't know if it's just a cultural thing, but some intellectual property doesn't mean what it means to us. And they've, they've stolen it over the past two decades, and now they are our number one competitor. As Secretary Pompeo recently told me, they are our number one threat. So I look forward to working with you all, and thank you so much for being here. Wow. I mean, that was really a very detailed and global view of the challenge we face. Um, I wanted to start off, you said so much, so I want to hit a lot of it, including your personal experience as a prosecutor in a Chinese influence and espionage campaign. But let's start, if we could, more on the macro. So we do have a new approach. It, it's, a, it's a big thing to have in our national security and national defense documents calling China a strategic competitor and trying to reposition our government in order to take on uh, China as a strategic competitor. How would you, sort of at a macro level, it's a new approach. Uh, you mentioned some elements of it. How would you rate that new approach? Is, is, is it adding up? The, 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 the parts you mentioned, is it adding up into something bigger, uh, into something cohesive that you can see? Yeah, I, I think so. I, when I first got elected to uh, Congress, I'm a big fan of the Bushes, and I remember Bush 41 had 
big reception in you know downtown Washington. Chinese flags everywhere. We we really were trying to embrace China. I wouldn't I wouldn't fault them. The prior administrations trying to change their course, um, but I think they've proven themselves not to be trustworthy uh, from the last two decades. And so we need a new approach. And I think this is the first administration I've seen actually stand up to the Chinese. And um, out of it, we got this uh, we got this uh, trade deal, which. You know, I talked about before, is, is Republicans were not always in favor of tariffs. I mean, we like free markets, right? But it, it actually kind of worked. And um, that first phase is uh, the trade imbalance. It's $200 billion and the IP and tech transfer piece is in there. Now, the question is going to be if he can enforce that. Um, he left the tariffs in place. He reduced the tariffs, but left them in place as a leverage to basically get them to um, – cooperate with the agreement. I'm a bit skeptical because I think that's their bread and butter, and that's how they make so much money. Um, and th- that would be a huge shift, cultural shift for Chinese, Chinese uh, CCP to go in that direction. So tariffs is, is very interesting. I mean, we're sitting here at a free market think tank, um, and uh, I tend to agree with you. I mean, tariffs is... is when it comes to China, an authoritarian state uh, that's been cheating so much on the economic rules, it certainly got their attention um, more than anything uh, I think we've seen in, in many years of dealing with China. Is that is that now, do you think, a tool in the American arsenal when it comes to our competitors? <clears throat> is that something that you want to see go away, or is it something you want to see uh, now used? I, you know, I think I think it's been effective. And, and so what we're seeing, whether it's Iran with the maximum pressure campaign with sanctions to terrorists with China. It's not uh, warfare in the traditional sense, but it's economic warfare, if you will, that they can help change their decision-making uh, at the policy level. And um, I was at the, the Chinese trade deal signing agreement with all the Chinese leader, leaders standing in the White House, and it was quite remarkable to watch, um, knowing what, what they have done over the years, but seeing them actually agreed to this document. Now, again, the question is going to be enforceability. Yeah. Well, so getting to enforceability, you mentioned in your talk a lot about theft, IP theft, cyber theft, trade secret theft, espionage. How, how do we get them to just stop this this unbelievable illicit transfer of, of our wealth and our, our best ideas? Do we, sank, do we have the capacity to sanction certain Chinese companies that have benefited the most, for example, or individuals who have benefited the most from this theft? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's basically that they can't get away with ripping us off anymore, that there will be consequences to your actions, which there never has been in the past. I mean, and going back to the security clearances. So we can get into cyber and that whole discussion. But I, I think that, um, you know, they need to know that uh, – and I think it's going to be very difficult, really, because it is so ingrained in their uh, national identity. It's also ingrained in their national economy, and their economy is so dependent on, on theft. Um, you know, they stole blueprints, you know, uh, to aircraft. I mean, it's funny how we see, like, aircraft being built that resembles a lot of our planes. We wonder where they got it. Well, they, they stole it, and, and they, um, they stole a lot of intellectual property. They don't invent as much. They do invest quite a bit, I would say, in, in the technology space. <clears throat> the quantum computing, 
Uh, they're taking very seriously. Whoever gets to quantum computing first will rule and, and uh, basically dominate the digital space. And I know that's, when you say quantum computing, people kind of glaze over, but I just can't emphasize how huge, it's the supercomputing that will de-encrypt everything, but it also works at such a high speed um, that it will dominate the, the digital space. And we got to be on the forefront. I've worked with our appropriators to make sure that we're investing, you know, not just we want to get private sector, but also public-private partnership. And I, want, I always make sure they get the briefings and we make sure the appropriators put the money to invest in that R&D. So uh, we're still a global power, and we have, as we've seen recently with Iran and al-Qaeda and Europe, we still have these global responsibilities. Are you satisfied from what you're seeing that the Department of Defense is repositioning itself? You mentioned things like hypersonics, things we really can't stop and are taking us by surprise. Are you satisfied that we're actually reposturing ourselves in a way that keeps us um, forward and preeminent in the Indo-Pacific? I, I, I think that's where the Pentagon wants to move their assets and attention. Iran has been a bit of a distraction lately, as you know. Uh, I do think ISIS and al-Qaeda and the caliphate, you know, the tenure I had as chairman of Homeland Security, I think we've crushed the caliphate. The threat level has gone a lot lower. In 2016, my briefings were horrifying, terrifying. One external operation after another to kill Americans in the United States. But now I kind of view in my perch on foreign affairs, the new threats are from nation-state adversaries like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. And that's where our attention is being played. Modernization of these weapons is critically important that we want to invest in because these hypersonics and exotic weapons that I've been briefed on, they're really kind of frightening, particularly the sea-based you know, platforms that they have, uh, more so the Russians, where they can launch these things from a sea-based platform that's very off the coast of the United States. My wife used to track Soviet submarines, you know, back in the day. Yeah. I never, like, dated somebody that tracked Soviet submarines, <laughs> so I, I asked her out there in the Space Museum. It's, and, it's Washington, right? <laughs> right? It happens. But, uh, you know, after the Cold War, they left. They receded, but now they're sort of back. So we need to modernize uh, these what they call exotic uh, weapons, because that Tiananmen Square, as I described, was a bit of an eye-opener when we saw what they were yeah. operating and what they actually had. Well, they're certainly not hiding anymore. I no. mean, there's deception, but, but they're now showing us what they have to intimidate. How, how would Which we... is interesting, because yeah. I think they're, they're deceptive until you, they get caught. Right. And they've been deceptive and hadn't got caught for two decades, but now they know they're getting caught and we're on to them, and that's, when, that's the breakout for them. Now they're exercising their muscle. Right, and certainly intimidating allies in smaller countries in Asia. What would satisfy you um, in your role that we are actually doing enough to provide the sort of reassurance both to the American people as well as to our allies that we can meet those capabilities that they're now demonstrating? How do we know? Well, again, I think for the first time we have a presence that stood up to them. You have a Department of Justice that's actually prosecuting now. That's a, that's a step in the right direction. Sure. We, haven't, we haven't seen that uh, and, and the consequences. And, and then I think, again, we can say, uh, you know, the Chinese people, again, I want to remind, I'm not talking about the Chinese people. I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party. Um, we need to understand how they operate, that it's, it's one and the same military, intelligence, private sector, 
our companies need to be aware when they go in that they're, they're going to have Chinese cells operating within, um, that nothing is going to be safe from being stolen. And then, you know, it may be a short-term gain for them, but then, you know, long-term, you're going to have a facility open up down the street with the same technologies, and they get run out of business. The African nations know they're getting exploited. The, they bring in their own workers. They don't hire the nation, the country's host workers. And then they debt trap and leverage them where they can wholesale take over these countries. Like the ports are really important. We look at the ports where China is in right now. I mean, they're, they took over Sri Lanka, Djibouti, which is right next to our military base, down to the uh, Panama Canal. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I worry that we just got to be more competitive. And then going back to the Build Act and the, the Development Corporation, I think that that's where we can invest with our private sector to, to go into these areas where they're taking over wholesale and try to compete against the Chinese and let these, these countries know that they're not in their best interest. And I think in some respects, in a lot of respects, they know that, but they don't have an alternative. So on that note, I mean, we no longer have a U.S. information agency. Uh, we have a global engagement center. But in terms of advertising to other countries, kind of the malign influence of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as our own positive influence for, for all our problems, do you see a need at a, at a strategic level? I'm always loathe to suggest new agencies, but at a strategic level to have what we had in the Cold War, which is some kind of strategic information operations um, that target some of these countries and, and, and also uh, stop the disinformation spread about mm-hmm. us. Right, and I met with the Voice of America. There's a new organization that deals with the technology. This, this is, it, it, it's vitally important both in China and Iran. Um, you know, these freedom fighters in Hong Kong, uh, getting information to them. I've never had more social media hits uh, in my entire career than I have out of Hong Kong. I probably have more supporters in Hong Kong than in my own district. <laughs> yeah. But standing up for them. And I think for them to get the message that we support them. And what Congress says, you know, I'm always surprised that when I say something on the floor, how it gets carried you know, to Hong Kong and, and the streets of Iran and and I think it's, it's a new technology to break, crack their internet. Because you're right, it's the communication and the, and the breakdown on, on their communication that stops freedom from rising up. And, and um, we are looking at VPN and peer-to-peer and some other things that we can use to, to have greater communications from within these very dominated internet-dominated uh, countries like China and Iran. Right. And, and it seems like you mentioned the, the defense finance, uh, I guess it's the Institute or DFI, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that's, that's uh, and the BUILD Act and so forth, which was passed on a bipartisan basis, supposed to uh, work with our private sector as well as, as, I guess, Australia, Japan, India, friendly countries, to do uh, projects in some of the countries you mentioned in Africa and Sri Lanka and other places where the private sector might not go itself. How do you see that unfolding now? I mean, would you like to see more financing? Would you like to see more risk-taking on the U.S. government to get the private sector insured? Well, we appropriate a pretty large sum of money to do just that. And so, again, we have to be competitive, you know, in these areas. But, um, you know, like when I talk to AT&T about 5G, for instance, right, they'll say, look, we're doing everything we can, but we don't have – 
you know, a state subsidy. We, we, you know, the United States government's not pouring a ton of money like they are in China. You know, they, they're all, their whole 5G program, Huawei, is state subsidized. And, you know, they just borrow money from themselves and they put tons of investment dollars in Huawei that makes it difficult to compete. So you mentioned Huawei and 5G, which has obviously been on everyone's mind for the last couple of years. And the U.S., <laughs> the administration's launched a diplomacy across particularly its 5i uh, allies, and, and, uh, but across the world with uneven success. You mentioned the U.K. Um, what do you say to people who, who say, well, actually, there's no alternative to, to Huawei. There's no equipment alternative. It's the cheapest. <clears throat> we'll, we'll still be able to protect it. And, and, and if there really is no alternative, how do we get to the stage in the United States where we don't have an alternative equipment maker and therefore the Chinese can beat us out on 5G deployment? I've had a lot of conversations in the, in the SCIF and the classified level about how can we jumpstart our 5G. So we, we, when you look at their, they planted down 4G, they're converting to 5G. It's approaching 50% of the world now. And if they're, you know, my God, if one of our 5i countries is now looking at it, um, we always talk about the five, five G for the five eyes, at a minimum to have our basic intelligence allies uh, not uh, opening a back door to China. And yet, uh, in, in the UK, we're seeing that. I, I hope they'll change their decision. I think Corey, you and I talked about. It. I mean, I can't. You know, at the MI five level and cabinet level, I don't think they support this decision. It is cheap. It's very attractive for countries that can't afford a whole lot. So it's cheap. It's also pretty cheap quality. And when they go in and build these ports and they build, I've seen the Chinese ports versus what we're doing. And it's like a, not Potemkin village, but it's a very cheaper undertaking. And um, I think, you know, waking up to not only, okay, it's, it's cheaper, but it's going to impact our national security. And that's something our State Department has to get across, our embassies have to get across, and Congress, we have to get that message across, and that's what we hope to do with our initiative. It, yeah, and it, again, do you think that the Chinese had sort of a concerted effort to make sure that there were no uh, viable equipment manufacturers left? I mean, do you think that, it, or was it just a function of there's so much subsidy to Huawei that nobody could compete? I think it's both, but, I, but it's clearly uh, the state subsidy. And they go into developing nations where it's very attractive. Look, we'll build you roads. We'll build you soccer stadiums. Remember, they're not subjected to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act like our businessmen are and women. Uh, so they go in with bags of cash, and it's very attractive. But then they bring in their indentured servants from China into the country. doesn't benefit the host nation. And every time I talk to these ambassadors from Africa, Latin America, we try to emphasize that. The good news story, like in El Salvador, the, the new president who's pro-U.S., uh, his predecessor was going to bring the Chinese in. They are going to take over two ports in El Salvador, and he, he basically kicked them out. And so I, I think it's a wake-up call, not only for our country, for these, but for these countries that uh, the Chinese are really predators, uh, where it's not in their long-term best interest. When you go back to your to your district in, in in Texas and talk to people, what resonates the most about what you say about China? I mean, are people feeling this challenge that 
perhaps their privacy will be infringed? Is it the IP? Is it the military aspect? Is it Hong Kong? What, what is it that really resonates? Probably, I think, the intellectual property theft and the cyber uh, dimension, because I, what I found with foreign policy is I can talk about these issues, and if I'm at a lo local chamber, they may get it. If I'm at just uh, some sort of town hall, uh, people, foreign policy resonates when it impacts them personally. Right. Like when ISIS was rearing its ugly head, people were terrified that they could hit in any place anywhere in the United States. And so I think, you know, our, my job is always as a member of Congress is, is taking what's, I'm, what I'm doing up in Washington and trying to translate it back in my district and why this is so important. And I think, you know, the fact that we've been ripped off, I do think the uh, people woke up to the tariffs and the China trade deal what that 200 billion means 50 billion for agriculture which is a higher number than they thought they could get negotiated and 50 billion for energy and 80 billion for manufacturing so when you talk about the he's going to talk a lot about the blue collar worker and the average american wages and and the farmers and the ranchers that that really does translate back home so that leads to another question which is there's obviously a lot of areas of contention, a lot of areas where we need to push back, but we also still want to cooperate with China, right? So as you mentioned before, it's a big export market. Uh, we don't want to go to war with China. Uh, we don't want conflict. So what would you say is, let's say five years out, is permissible? What, what kind of relationship would you say, okay, we've succeeded, and, and this, mm -hmm. is the, this, is, this is now a positive, constructive relationship with China? Well, I think it, when we have not, not just free trade, but fair trade, I think when we hit that watershed moment, we're getting closer. I, I think that is. It, we are intertwined, like it or not. It's a global economy. I worry all the economic indicators are so positive right now with the tax cuts, the, uh, with the USMCA signing. I was there. That's going to help out you know, workers and, and the China deal. Uh, I worry about this coronavirus and the impact it could have on uh, the Chinese economy, because it's, it's, in our, it's not in our best interest to see their economy fail. We want them to move to, towards a different system, though, that's not Chinese Communist Party, that's not state-subsidized. Uh, that, that's a very difficult challenge, though. Well, the virus is a, is a great example of, of the cost of the Chinese people, of, of the kind of secrecy and deception and, and not telling them what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it, it's so big now that it affects all of us. But how do we, I mean, to, we're making the distinction, as you did, between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. How do we signal to the Chinese people that we're actually the ones who do want more freedom and justice and transparency? How do we signal that we're on their side? It's, it's breaking through the, their Internet. And, and it's through these devices we have. It's through being, being able to push in messages uh, inside of China. And being able to communicate with them inside and back out. Same challenge we have in Iran. You know, I think the Iranian people, 80 million of them, I'd say 80%, do not like this theocracy. They don't want to live under it. And, um, you know, in China, it's, it's a whole different situation. But as we saw with the Hong Kong protesters, you know, they do want freedom and democracy from what's a very oppressive, brutal when you look at what they're doing to the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Christians and um, selling organs, and I mean, it's really horrific stuff. 
uh, that they do. Well, there's no doubt there's uh, many Chinese people who don't want this system in place. Um, but it's, it's always been so hard for us to, to, to figure out how to be on their side. And, and how to open it up. I think yeah. from Nixon on, they've tried to open it up. Right. And I don't criticize them for their efforts. I just I think we're a little bit blind to the threat as well. So we're in, a, in an election year. You started off on China in 1996 uh, before uh, most people were paying attention, and you prosecuted a case of illicit campaign financing. Do you think it's still something we have to worry about when it comes to China? <clears throat> I, I think they've moved away from the model of funding campaigns, but disinformation certainly you know, um, is a factor, more, probably more so with the Russians, but... Um, I think they're, they're very much into disinformation. They know that's probably more effective. And, um, but um, I just think it's the intellectual property text transfer issue. Uh, that was a fascinating case. Uh, it was a, quite an introduction into you know, this, the way of thinking within China mm-hmm. uh, and how it's really run by... China airspace is really, it's an arm of the military and, and the director of Chinese intelligence, who's not very well known. Now, we brought in Chang, we put like 50 different photographs on a table that the FBI got, and there's one picture of Ji Shinda currently and one when he was younger. And we were just trying to identify if he even knew the guy, because he's not publicly known like our CIA director. And within seconds, he immediately pointed to the two pictures. And so we knew that he had met with them, or at least knew them. And then when the bank deposit came in uh, from Lu Chaoying, which the PRC wouldn't give us, we had to get Chung to sign a consent form to get his records. It's it's made for Hollywood if there wasn't so much much censorship in Hollywood (laughs) about China. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.